Hello and welcome to a show of their own sports and life with Morgan and Laura. I'm Morgan. And I am Laura. And we're gonna start off with just a light baseball load this week, which I very much appreciate after the last few weeks have just been like a lot of garbage news. It's kind of nice that it's a light week. Um, so the main thing that was announced, which was pretty much announced when we recorded last time, but we didn't have all of the details are the updated health and safety protocols for, um, the 2021 season for MLB and, um, all the information I got is from the athletic. They said, from my understanding, everything that they got is pretty much what's in the actual agreement that all the players got um very poorly worded (laughs) agreement there was a lot of things I read three times still didn't quite understand sent it to Laura had her see if she could understand if it was just me that wasn't understanding it it was MLB being ridiculous which shouldn't be that much of a surprise uh but one thing that like the very first thing uh, was that they were going to have something similar to the NFL and NBA, and that is wearing um, these sensors to monitor social distancing. And basically, if, if a player were player or coach, I'm assuming, um, were to test positive, then they could do contact tracing. I didn't know this was a thing that they did in NFL or NBA. Like, it's not something I've heard talked about at all. Uh, So that was like news to me just right off the bat, but it's an interesting concept, kind of smart to do. Um, And I think they later like stated that they have to wear it basically anytime they're on club property type thing, anything MLB related pretty much all the time. It sounds like, Uh, which is also kind of weird. I don't really know what kind of sensor it is like. In my mind, my first thought was like when it was thought that the Astros were wearing like buzzers and that's what I imagined, but it could be, I, I guess it could be that it could be something like, like a, like a Fitbit type thing is something I'm also imagining. I don't really know, but it's an interesting concept. Yeah, it would be really interesting in like seeing how predictive it is and like how effective it is at con- uh, contact tracing yeah because obviously there's two directions if it has a bunch of false positives then you're just not really saving much from just the old-fashioned sort of contact tracing yeah then also if it misses people then that's obviously a huge problem right um I might have more of that in my other notes I have like four pages of notes just on this because some of it was actually kind of interesting uh there also will be uh, punishments if they violate any of the protocol, which I think they said they were going to do last year. And then like, there weren't really any, um, there will, there could be suspensions. There could be forfeit of, uh, their salary, depending on how many games or days they have to miss. Uh, they, a lot of this bounces around. I have some of it section off. Some of it's kind of just like a summary of other things. They have to, before spring training, which starts in, I believe they can arrive now, but like they have 
to arrive by the 20th. I think it's where they have until the, like, I know there's always a, this is the first day you can arrive. This is the last day you can arrive kind of thing. And February 20th seems to be like the day they have to be there by, I think. Again, a lot of it's kind of confusing in their wording, but uh, five days before arriving to spring training, they have to do a um, a five-day at-home quarantine and that in the thing it includes them and also their household members which I thought was kind of a smart thing to include because I I read like I said I read the whole thing last year and I never read anything about like household family members also have to do this this and this but they specifically mentioned it in almost every part of the agreement this year um they're going to do testing at least every other day which I believe is what they did last year as well uh Oh, they have to wear the those sensors during team activities, club-directed travel, and while in club facilities. So I understood that to be also like at the hotels, but not like at home, which is interesting. But uh, they are not allowed to attend or enter the following events. Also, they, they uh, call everyone that this is... Uh, goes for as covered individuals, which means uh, players, coaches, managers, umps, and a limited number of essential staff that works closely with the team. So I'm assuming that's, uh, I wouldn't assume that's like broadcasters or like the dugout reporters. I'm thinking like athletic trainers, like anybody in the dugout and the clubhouse, even though reporters go in there, but they're not in there for more than maybe an hour, probably not even that long with COVID. Um, so the, you're not allowed to go to any indoor gatherings of 10 or more people, indoor restaurants or dining areas, bars, lounges, or clubs, fitness or wellness centers that are not affiliated with MLB or clubs. Um, you cannot invite personal trainers to your house or on the road to like your hotel, which I, I'm kind of surprised. Like all of this seems like, well, duh, like you have to be this specific, but like last year they were not this specific. So to me, I'm like, oh, they really did actually think this through. Uh, no entertainment venues, no gaming venues. Uh, they cannot leave their hotel. Hotels are required to essentially give them like dining space. Uh, they can't meet with this. This one was a little confusing to me can't meet with guests not part of traveling party except for family or household members so I'm assuming they can't like see friends which is I get we're all essentially can't see our friends because of quarantine and COVID and all of that but I think that's interesting I'm curious how that would work for like players who have significant others that don't live with them technically that would mean that they can't see them but they can see family members who don't live with them so I'm interested to see if like anyone breaks that rule if we find out what happens like I feel like there are some loopholes you could play around with on this um they also were very specific in mentioning face coverings and that it has to cover nose and mouth which I for one appreciated after seeing an abundance of coaches and other sports not covering their nose uh, they also um, teams can create their own 
like code of contact, code of conduct supplement to this, but they can't take away anything from this because obviously it was agreed upon with MLB. Um, they have they have three phases for spring training. Um, phase one is covering from when they report to spring training until February 20th. And that's just small group workouts. Phase two would be the 21st through the 26th, which would be workouts and then um, inter-squad games. And then they won't start doing exhibition games until February 27th through March 13th, which is essentially uh, normal practice for spring training. However, for the uh, oh my God, I blank on the exhibition games. They have some uh, different kind of rules as far as um, how long the games have to be. Uh, there was one uh, rule that they changed in there that made me think of finished baseball and that uh, defensive managers can end any inning prior to three outs following a completed at-bat appearance provided the pitcher has thrown at least 20 pitches. So basically they're having essentially a run rule, which is smart because it's just spring training games. Um, also they can reschedule basically any game. B can relocate clubs or reschedule. Um, they have to get consent with MLB Players Association uh, to conduct some or all 2021 postseason in neutral sites or delay the start of the postseason. There also will be a joint committee that decides, let's say a team doesn't want to play that game because fear of COVID. And then Manfred says, no, you should play that game. The joint committee will then decide if the game will be played or not. If the team then doesn't like the ruling that the joint committee gives, like if the joint committee is like, no, you should still play the game and they decide not to play the game, it's essentially a forfeited game and they get, they lose that game. Um, they all, again, have to wear masks. The first and second violation of not wearing masks, it's just a written warning. Third and subsequent will be a fine of $150 per violation yeah 150 laura's making up the same face i made when i read it which is like 10 cents to most normal people and i read it like four times i was like are, are you sure it's 150 dollars that's what it said uh if there will also be some kind of punishment it didn't really specify on what if you have a prolonged prolonged argument with um, an ump in close proximity without a mask, which my understanding is that's completely different than the rule last year that they did not enforce, which was that you could not come within six feet of the ump regardless of mask or not, which they never enforced that rule. So I really don't feel like they're going to enforce this one, but whatever. Um, by opening day, uh, noon on opening day, the club each club has to give a 26-player opening day roster because this year we move instead of a 25-man roster, we have 26-man roster. Uh, there will also be 
AAA affiliates. They only mentioned AAA affiliates and then um, an alternate training site, which I don't know why they're having an alternate training site if we are using minor leagues this year, because that was something they did last year since we didn't have minor leagues. They're still going with it. There's also going to be a taxi squad of five players. One, one of those five has to be a catcher. Um, on September 1st, rosters expand to 28 players. Uh, 29 players when there's double headers. All double headers will be seven innings for both games. And I think that about covers it. I was just very happy that they mentioned that masks have to be, they said they cannot be below the nose or below the mouth, which I was, again, seems like no duh to the rest of us, but it's a hard thing for athletes to do. They also have to wear them in the dugouts, which for some reason I remember writing that and don't remember reading it just now, but um, full face and mouth has to be covered at all times in the dugout, which was something we didn't see last season. It was kind of like, if you want to wear it, you can wear it. You don't have to, but you can. This time it seems like everyone in the dugout has to wear the mask. And then if it's below your nose, below your mouth, you could get your written warning and your $150 fine, uh, which I'm, again, curious to see if they enforce. I feel like it'll be easier to enforce this year because now we've been in a pandemic for a year that you should be used to wearing a mask properly. So therefore they have no excuse. Um, it'll be very interesting to see if any you catch any players, coaches, etc. Uh, quickly moving that mask over their face when the camera pans to them because I've also seen a lot of that in other sports. It is interesting uh, what the NHL kind of did that I think would be interesting in the MLB is they basically it's like we're not doing a suspension or anything like that it's just if you break our protocol then we're going to put you into COVID protocol to make sure you don't have it which is like a, a minimum of like four days or so and so if they did that with MLB players it's like hey if you break you can like do whatever you want you won't get suspended it won't go on your record but you won't be able to play for the the time and then it's because it's outside of the suspension process you don't get the whole like draconian like appeal and all of that sort of thing it's like very simple to do it would be yeah. kind of interesting to see that because Part of the reason the NHL did this, and I think part of the reason MLB is a little more explicit this year, is because the more you go on, the, like the, the MLB has a full season, you have real data as to the costs of everything and yeah, like how much each delay and stoppage impacts the overall landscape of the sport and the individual teams and all of that. And so you have an incentive to like, minimize losses yeah um I it's just I still feel like there's gonna because like that $150 fine really isn't I mean that's not much for a major leaguer that would hurt a minor leaguer just because they don't get paid much at all paid when they play but like I'm sorry there's so many garbage MLB players who don't even believe that COVID is a thing or that big of a deal that I can see being mad about wearing a mask in the dugout and therefore they don't wear it because it's a $150 fine. Well, and like, it's not even just, so that's any player, 
is just completely not going to care from your least paid to your most paid they just won't care yeah if they, if they do follow the rules it's because they actually care about covid not because they care about the fine but right. then even most of the staff who's impacted by this because managers make more than that but not even just managers like your bench coaches your pitching coaches who who makes l- like less enough to care care about this it's not many people who would be impacted by these rules Yeah, I'm also surprised that it's the first two violations are written warnings. I feel like the $150 should be like your second violation because we've been in this pandemic for a year. Mm -hmm. Wear a mask. It's not that hard. Um, So since that was really the only news, uh, I had found some other, um, I think MLB a couple days ago about a female uh a black woman player who um was one of three uh women to play professional baseball and I'll be honest I had never known that women played in the Negro Leagues I'll be honest I don't know as much as I probably should about the Negro Leagues uh so it's not surprising that I didn't know women played in that leagues but I decided to look into it because it's something I didn't know and I found it interesting so uh there were the three women all played uh for the same team they kind of overlapped a bit so first they all played for the Indianapolis Clowns they were the first professional baseball team to hire a female player to a long-term contract that was not voided soon after so that made me think that there were other teams that did sign women to the contract but then we're like no that's just for publicity you're not actually going to play kind of a thing so the first uh women in the league was Tony Stone she was um by being the first woman in the Negro Leagues. This also made her the first woman to play as a regular on an American big league professional baseball team, which is obviously super cool. She, there was a lot of stuff about her. Like I looked at her Wikipedia page too. And I wrote, I took a lot of notes and then a lot of it was kind of like, but we don't know for sure if this happened. So I kind of took out a lot just because again, I couldn't verify that it happened. And I, Sometimes Wikipedia is kind of iffy. Like sometimes our teachers were right in not trusting Wikipedia for research purposes. So I only have like a few things. Um, But one of the main things I saw was that, oh, sorry, she was a second baseman. She was actually signed to replace Hank Aaron because he had been on the team for just like a few months. And then I missed why he was, I think he left to end up going on a better team I can't remember I'm actually reading his biography right now and I'm literally just at the point where he's going to this team so he's not at this point he's not on the Indianapolis Clowns however I think it's pretty cool that I mean we just did talked about Hank Aaron so we know how good he is that they signed a female to replace him like that's a freaking compliment and maybe they didn't know how much of a compliment that was at this time because this is 1953 so before all his accomplishments but now that we know it's like damn she must have been good um she reportedly got a hit off satchel page who is a very notable uh pitcher so she played for uh a couple years again I just realized I took out some of those notes that had actual 
numbers on them, but she also spent one season with the Kansas City Monarchs after having her contract sold by Indianapolis. She played just one year with Indianapolis, 50, 53. I've tried to understand my own notes. This is so bad. Um, 53, 54. And then she hit uh, 243 over two seasons in the Negro Leagues, which, I mean, it's not the best batting average, but there are a lot of baseball players who get paid millions of dollars to hit worse than that. Um, in 1993, she was inducted into the Women's Sports Hall of Fame and the International Women's Sports Hall of Fame. In 2019, there was actually an off-Broadway play that was produced by a uh, award-winning playwright, Lydia R. Diamond, titled Tony Stone. Um, and it's all about her life. I'm. It came out in 2019. I, obviously, since COVID, it's not going right now but I think it's at the time that COVID happened I think it was still on off Broadway I don't really know how that works because I don't know much about Broadway um the second woman in the Negro Leagues and this is the one that started like this idea for this little segment this is a shallow dive and I'm doing very bad at it but I am trying very hard with the few facts that they provide and it's honestly kind of sad MLB does not provide more facts because MLB tweeted about this next female and I was like oh because it was like a little slideshow thing I was like oh well then surely her Wikipedia page will have more MLB literally included everything that was on her Wikipedia page and they had like seven slides so it's sad and I wish there was more ways to find out more about them that I could verify the information um so her name was Mamie I hope I'm saying that right it's M-A-M-I-E Mamie Johnson she was known as Peanut because she was only 5'3 which I think is kind of adorable um but she and at first I was like men gave her that name because she was short but she seemed use it to her advantage like these men thought she was so short and she was a pitcher so that's really short for a pitcher um, but she seemed to use that to her advantage as like, they're not intimidated by me, but they're going to be. Um, so she's the first female pitcher in the league. She signed with the Indianapolis Clowns in 1953. Uh, she was a right-handed pitcher in her career over three seasons. She had a record of 33 and eight. And she also batted and she had a batting average of 270, hitting against um, men who, you know, supposedly have a stronger arm throw better faster harder all that kind of thing and she batted 270 like there are MLB players right now that would kill for that batting average um after she retired from baseball she earned a nursing degree in North Carolina agriculture technical agriculture oh my god North Carolina A&T thank you um and she was a nurse for over 30 years before she signed the contract with Indianapolis I almost said Colts, uh, that's not the team, Clowns. She had also been accepted to NYU, which I thought was pretty cool. On June 5th, 2008, she and other living members from the Negro League era were drafted by major league franchises prior to the 2008 MLB first year draft. She was drafted by the Washington Nationals, and she is from the D.C. area as well. I lived there her whole life. There's a few uh, murals in D.C., Uh, commemorating her the final woman is Connie Morgan and she began her baseball career in high school she was um 
with the North Philadelphia Honey Dippers, Drippers, <laughs> uh, a local semi-pro club made up entirely of Black women. Um, she played five seasons with that team, mainly as a catcher, with a 338 batting average, which is insane. Real good. Yeah. Um, like that, like you could have those as like a one season average, but for that to be over five years, it's insane. Um, she was signed by the clowns as a replacement for Tony Stone. Um, and she played for them for two years. After she retired from that, she went on to William Penn Business Institute, completed her program there in accounting, and went on to work for the American Federation of Labor and Congress of Industrial Organizations until her retirement in 1974. And she was inducted in the Pennsylvania Sports Hall of Fame in 1995, which was sadly a year before she died. She only lived to be 60. Um, so I did want to say just a little plug for all my Midwesterners. Um, Kansas City has the Negro League Museum, and obviously we can't go there now, but I haven't been, but I have cause to be in that area more now. And so when it opens, that's something I definitely want to go and check out and obviously would encourage all of you. I just did look it up and they do have some memorabilia and stuff on specifically women in the Negro League. So yes, definitely worth going. And that's all I got for MLB this week. So with that, (laughs) we'll go to hockey. Um, I don't have a ton of general hockey stuff, kind of going on a good transition note from where we left in uh, the MLB. I thought this was really cool. I was so excited to see it. Uh, The Black Girls Hockey Club and the Seattle Kraken, who are the new NHL hockey team that will be having the expansion draft this year, um, partnered to release a merch line that has both of their logos on it. It's already sold out, which I thought was amazing. That's awesome. I I think the thing I love about this is it's not just what some people might, some ignorant people might say is like pandering or stuff Mm -hmm. like that. It's, It's not that per se, because so they don't have any players. They don't have any real way to like build a fan base because like what is there to do? And so if you really go into a marginalized group, a group that doesn't always get catered to in any real way in hockey specifically, then that's a way to like get a a real opportune market, a, a market where like it had a lot of untapped potential in hockey fandom. And I think that could be so powerful uh, for hockey in general. Uh, and especially if, because the, the Seattle Kraken have the same draft rules that Vegas had. Now, no guarantee they will go to the Stanley Cup finals, but because of the rules, they basically make it so like they can't be absolute trash to start unless yeah. they just willingly pick the worst players (laughs) which I can't imagine they would do that without getting something in return so I think it kind of gives them an opportunity to really put some roots in some really interesting places uh, for a great fan base and a sustainable hockey fan base of the future yeah so the other thing I wanted to point out um, my first story of the 
one of the climbing the corporate ladder will kind of cover some of the events that caused this. But after like everything that the NHL has gone through with all of the teams and the COVID issues and this stuff, apparently they weren't doing rapid testing, but they are now doing rapid testing. Who knew? Like this is like right with it. This is all like very good continuation from MLB because yeah. who knew that we needed to like actually prove to the NHL that that was a good idea but apparently we did and apparently we have so (laughs) we now have that they did also in their like stupid things they did they removed the glass behind the penalty boxes which it is interesting now because then like um Ryan Reeves and Evander Kane both got uh in, in the penalty box and they really hate each other yeah and so they're just like leaning back, like just screaming at each other. Oh and it my is God. Like, <laughs> this is not, not really saving COVID anything, no. but it is like promoting like more yelling in the benches. So that's, that's very NHL of them. Um, but now it's time for everyone's favorite climbing the corporate ladder, beginning with the Honda West division and with kind of something that brings together those first two stories I told you about. Uh, Tomas Nosek, uh, Thomas Reeves' line wake mate for Vegas, was pulled in the middle of the Vegas game. And everyone was like, what happened? They didn't see him get hurt. But what went on? He had taken a COVID test like the day prior, and they did just get the result in the middle of the game that it was positive. And so they pulled him mid-game. And this was why we had to do this, like do rapid testing so we would actually have the results before the game I mean wow who knew that having the results before the game was a good idea who's very Justin Turner of them wait so even though he tested positive and he was in the middle of a game like they didn't call the game or postpone any of Vegas's other games nope (sighs) okay (laughs) Seems to have been a gamble that worked. I don't know of yeah. any other Vegas that tested positive, but it's not exa- part of it is because he's a fourth liner. I think he had <laughs> less playing time. Yeah. But still, great, great idea. Um, I also wanted to just throw randomly a couple of Vegas things. I, ran- I don't know if you saw, but they did the like gold helmets. Oh, I saw those. Mm-hmm. Terrible. Awful. Just horrid. I. I- I tweeted about how they looked like cheap, like party city gold crowns. Yeah. So I was going to say like, um, cause my sister, uh, my sister roots for, uh, well, is an, an alum of Notre Dame and they have the hockey ones are not as good, but the hockey ones and specifically the football ones look so, so so much better because they use gold helmets yeah so I'm, I'm looking at that compared to um the Vegas ones and the Notre Dame ones the Vegas ones look like when you go to one of those shady sites and buy like a knockoff yeah. jersey it looks like the knockoff helmet version yeah of what Notre Dame does because Notre Dame's look so much better and someone was saying like, because I couldn't quite pinpoint what, why they looked so cheap. And someone said, like, they're too shiny. And I feel like that's it. 
they're too shiny and they are a bit too so the um the Notre Dame ones have a bit of like a chrome sheen to yes. them and these ones have like a yellow gold like yes thing that's to what them. it is and it does it makes a huge difference they, um, and it it literally looked like someone put cheap plastic on their heads and like, was like wrapping Go paper or something yeah. it's terrible yeah so those are trash I they need to <laughs> not do that um uh I did want to also mention COVID is going to be the theme of the West Division. Uh, the Wild are back to practicing after being decimated by COVID. So at least it seems like they might get started playing soon, which is good. The other half of that equation, uh, the Avs are also returning. So these are my last two stories kind of combined. They both last played on February 2nd, and it seems like they'll be back sometime this week. So kind of huge for the West Division and those two teams specifically. Um, it, it did end up being a bit fortuitous for the Avalanche because Nathan McKinnon got hurt right before they had to take a break because of COVID. I think he might have missed like a game or two, mm-hmm. but he will now be back when they return. So he had like two weeks off where his team wasn't playing to get yeah. better. And that's huge for them because their chances greatly increase. Yeah. They have Nathan McKinnon. So huge for them. Um, I know I would mention this when we get to the stars, but I know I'll forget by then. Um, I, and I know they don't play in the same division, but interesting that Colorado and the wild have not played since February 2nd which was the last time they won a game so maybe them playing will somehow make the stars figure it all out again that's the common thread clearly here something like the world imploded on February 2nd or yes. something apparently <laughs> um so next Going, going up north, the Scotia North Division or Team Canada or Division Canada or whatever. Um, talking about like the least interesting team in there, um, Ottawa. Ottawa uh, acquired, uh, had a trade this week. Um, and it was interesting because it was a cross-border trade, but that both, all of the players involved are definitely regular lineup players, but aren't consequential enough that it's like, oh, wow, it really sucks that they have to sit out this long. So Ottawa acquired Ryan Dezingle from Carolina, which I believe he played for Car- played for Ottawa and was traded to Columbus in the Matt Duchesne deal. So he's at least somewhat familiar with Ottawa. Um, and they sent Alex Galchenyuk and Cedric Paquette back. I thought this was interesting. Both Galchenyuk and Paquette only have one point this season. Galchenyuk was like an eighth overall pick and he like declined in value very rapidly. He was drafted by the Canadians. He was traded to Montreal for Max Domi, who ended up being a really valuable piece for the Canadians. But then the Coyotes who traded Max Domi for him, then eventually traded him in the Phil Kessel trade. But it was almost like he was a throw in for salary reasons or to add an extra forward because uh, the prospect is the big part of that. Who's currently playing a bunch of the Penguins right now, Pierre Olivier Joseph. Um, 
Chenyuk didn't do much for the Penguins. It was just kind of a throw in and a trade to Minnesota. So he is really like jumped off a cliff as far as uh, value wise and like perception in the league. So that's really interesting. The other thing I wanted to point out, I never, this like words I would never thought I would say, if you go and watch the highlight from Ottawa's game last night, super exciting. They were tied one-to-one and Brady Kachuk scored a goal with like less than 10 seconds left to win it in regulation for Ottawa, which is really exciting. That team kind of needed it just as like a momentum because they weren't, and obviously they're going probably going to finish last, but just having more of a, morale booster kind of thing is interesting and good and I think they kind of need it so good for them um the other thing I want to point out is the Leafs are rolling I thought this is a really interesting um statistic they're the only team in their division for kind of obvious reasons you'll see they've beat every single team in the division at least once now some of that is some of the other teams haven't even played everyone so definitely a little bit of a a caveat there but still they have done really well because they are 11 2 and 1 and it's the second highest winning percentage behind of course their best friends the Boston Bruins it had to be the Bruins (laughs) yeah but um, they're just absolutely really amazing and I mean, you look at their team and the fact that they shored up the defense and not just defense and just on the defenseman side of things, but on the forward side of things, they look so much better schematically and stuff. They look like, like uh, even when they play the Canadians, they look like kind of the class of that division and kind of the class of the NHL a bit. So I really am interested to see when the postseason comes, how they're going to do. Obviously, some of it is interdependent, but they look amazing. Um, Kind of on the other side of things, I mentioned the Canadians. After going 8-2-2 in January, which is objectively really good, they are 3-3-0. So they have three regulation wins, or three wins, and three overtime, or overtime, regulation losses in February. so I was saying my concern for the Habs is that if you look at their schedule, 11 of their first 19 games they've played so far have been against Vancouver and Ottawa, who are the bottom two in the league right now. Uh, by contrast, 14 of the remaining 37 games are against those two teams. So they go from over 50% to to significantly under that. And so the talent that they're playing is significantly increased. And so obviously everyone like, oh, we thought they would be the surprise team and they are the surprise team. They're so amazing. But uh, part of the narrative is in fact the teams that they're playing. So I think it'll be interesting to see once they're having continued play against the higher rated teams in their division, how that will go. So that is the Scotia North division. Next is the Mass Mutual East division. Um, More COVID stuff. Uh, (laughs) Governor Cuomo has authorized New York arenas, which is the Rangers, Islanders, and Sabres uh, can open for limited fans starting February 23rd, um, which will be interesting. Interesting, yeah. 
something I just wanted to point out, this is, has nothing to do with it, but it's, it's kind of a random fact I always think is interesting. So because of some government deal struck forever ago, um, the Rangers and the um, New York Knicks get some kind of amazing tax deal in New York if they play all of their home games at MSG. So they, a few years ago, maybe it was two or three years ago, they did a, uh, the Winter Classic at Yankee Stadium and it was Rangers, Sabres, and it was a home game for the Buffalo Sabres despite the fact that they were closer to the New York Rangers, but they were in New York. So it was a home game for the Sabres. So they have done that. If any, any of those outdoor games that the Rangers have been involved with, they are never the home team. And that is the reason. Interesting. So there's your interesting thing. Um, I loved this. So I don't know. It's kind of like a viral thing whenever it happens, but Tyler Sagan and Mark Shifley yeah. both liked to leave the ice first. And so when they played each other, they would rock, paper, scissors to see who got to leave first. Mm-hmm. Um, and Mika Zibanejad and Brad Marchand did the same thing for the Rangers and the Bruins. And I'm very much here for that. I love those kinds of fun things. Me too. And especially like with the intensity of the season, got to have something fun. Yeah. And I think the most important thing of this update is the Penguins. Um, There's a lot to go over here. They hired Brian Burke as the president of hockey operations and Ron Hextall as the general manager. It's ironic because for other reasons, I mentioned Brian Burke in my rant or my rave last week about Sportsnet and he, that's where he was before that. Um, it's interesting. I'm really curious how that's going to go, the kinds of impact and decision-making and stuff that he'll have, um, I think will be very fascinating. Um, I'm not really sure, uh, if it's just like negotiating contracts and stuff, I think it could be potentially really good because he's pretty tough. Um, I just hope it's not like personnel decisions because when you hear him talk and obviously some of it's a character for TV, but when you hear him talk, it's very much not how I would vision the penguins wanting to go forward and what makes sense for the team that they have. Uh, Ron Hextall, I think a lot of people thought would be a front runner and was, um, he kind of built the flyers and then for various reasons uh, got fired, but the talent if you look at who's on the team right now be it drafted or traded most of it is through Hextall so um very interesting um so uh Morgan if you have the um document up I definitely want to play this game because the Penguins have played 11 defensemen so far this season and including one who has my favorite name ever. Do you see that name? Uh huh. How do you say that? Oh God. <laughs> there are two Z's in this next. So I'm gonna C's. spell it for for everyone so they can play along with you. It's C Z U C Z M A N. 
Is this like a Kachuk thing where you don't pronounce one of the letters? So it's like Zookman? Get ready. It's worse oh God. than that. Oh, God. Churchman. No. <laughs> the letters are just there. It, it starts with C and ends with man. And then nothing else in the middle it matches. There's n- there's no R. I know, right? It's Churchman, though. That's how you pronounce it. Um, yeah, it's it's fascinating. And I, I wanted to put that in there because they had a Penguins writer from The Athletic on the Steve Dangle podcast. And he was talking about this stat that I just said, 11 defensemen. And the most recent one was Kevin Churchman. And um, Steve was like, I looked it up. It is not spelled remotely how you think it would be. <laughs> and so there you go. Kevin Churchman. Um, great, that's great so bar stupid. trivia. That's so stupid. I um, know it's like because it's a different language technically, but like, is he a, Russian no, or is it? I don't even think it's because it's a different language. I think that's like in the different language, it's probably pronounced something completely different. And then everyone was like, "We can't pronounce this." When they immigrated, so it's like it's Churchman. Because that is not. I can't make that work in my head. Um, it it like actually hurts my head to look at and then hear you say it. So there's your there's your fun moment of the game. I also wanted to talk about their two games. So they had a very anxiety-inducing shootout win <laughs> over the Islanders, which it was like, again, they won, but not in a way that makes you feel like this is at all repeatable. And then today they had their best win most dominant they actually looked like a good hockey team win of the season beating uh the penguins or beating penguins being the capitals six to three um little closer than that because it was four to three for most of the game then they got two empty net goals um but it's very fascinating because all of the goals this game were scored by two lines uh, the Crosby against the Rust line, which has absolutely, even the nights they don't score, like every time you watch them, they, they just absolutely own whatever team they're playing. That, that line is clicking. And then the um, reunited because of a return from injury, uh, defensive, amazing line, tough defensive line, matchup line, I guess you could call it of uh, Aston Reese, Bluger, and Tanev um, got two of the goals too. So that's, it's really interesting that it's those two lines. There was no power play goals, which is continuing to be a concern. Um, Both power play and penalty kill have kind of been part of the problem where they've been pretty dominant five on five, actually, if you look at the numbers and they've just been so bad on those two. So they definitely still have work to do, but at least they won. At least we're heading in the right direction. Let's hope this can actually lead to some. This was like their biggest win by two goals because they've never won by more than one goal this season. So, oh man, that is like we need to start kind of heading in that direction. So, with that, we end with the Discover Central Division. Um, I wanted to continue on with the line A mentoring that I mentioned last week. Um, he says that he deserved it. That was his quote. Um, it sounds like there was some kind of argument with the assistant coach. Um, I think we'll never really know enough to be able to judge one way or the other, but it seems like everyone's moved on. And he really does fit with the team because it's made their power play so different. I watched some of their games and just the threat of him. He's kind of like 
right there with maybe second to Ovechkin where he has a spot and he just sits there and everyone knows it's going there and he still like he still scores goals that way and so it's really impactful on a team that had a lot of hard, a hard time scoring goals it's really changed the look of that team and I really uh, like it on the other side of things Miko Koivu kind of quietly retired after very few games with Columbus. It was weird because so he's a longtime captain of Minnesota and then was an unrestricted free agent. Minnesota wasn't going to sign him, so he went to Columbus and then kind of did what some of the players who have switched teams historically have done or played a few games like, nope, not going to do it, and then retired. And before people like start trashing on Columbus or anything like that, his explanation was that he wasn't able to get to the level that he thought he should be able to help the team. And so he wanted to retire. And I think if you think about it, it makes a lot of sense because he's an older player, obviously on the decline anyways, but when you consider the impact of COVID on like a schedule and regimen, yeah. like when I'm thinking back to Yarner Yager and like his end in the National Hockey League, he didn't sign and didn't sign and didn't sign. And then mid season signed with Calgary and got hurt really quick and just never looked as great as people thought he should and it was because he wasn't in the normal flow of the schedule and so it really does make a difference I think um so I wanted to talk about Chicago because they're kind of the surprise of a little bit of the NHL and also just uh hockey in general and the big surprise is I, I dubbed it because I saw it on Twitter from an athletic writer uh hashtag Lankin in season uh their goalie because everyone was like they have no goaltending yeah. and all of the people the two goalies that were everyone thought were going to be and were their starting goalies for a while um Malcolm Subban and Colin Delia have not done well and have lived up to the very low expectations people had of them um, but then Kevin Lankinen started playing and has been really a stabilizing force. And considering the problems that Chicago has on defense, having a decent goalie really helps things. Um, I was watching a Blackhawks broadcast and I had to bring this up um, and I thought it's fascinating. Um, first of all, Finnish and Swedish players a lot of times are just so cute and funny in their own regards mm-hmm. and just awesome and you have to look at some of the stuff in their own languages if you can find translated versions because there's really interesting stuff but um he was talking about he apparently loves to read and uh so he and have partnered with a Finnish publisher to have a Facebook book club that he like picks a book every month and says what he thinks of it and then everyone talks about it and stuff so a hockey player running a Finnish book club I thought that's just, so cute isn't it though <laughs> um, so that and then the other one I wanted to point out a newbie who has kind of come out of nowhere and done amazing and also in the names that aren't pronounced like they look this one is closer this one won't blow your mind as much as Kevin Churchman it looks like pious suitor because it's p-i-u-s but it's puce suitor okay i can i can live with that and i think it's puce is better than pious yeah pious is a bit of a weird name so yeah puce suitor um has he had a a hat trick a while ago he's just done really amazing so definitely a person to watch and 
I just left this last uh, part for it's it's a rant, basically a pre-rant yeah. rant about the stars' statement, their general play lately. Anything you want to talk about with the stars, I'm going to hand it over to my co-host Morgan. Um, so might as well get the statement out of the way that no one asked for. Like, I, I just. <laughs> literally no one asked for it it wasn't even about the NHL it wasn't even about the only connection they have to it is it started because of the team that shares an arena with them like that's the only connection and they just decided well we have to make our own statement about the national anthem like nothing's changed for us and we're not in the NBA but you know we share an arena so I guess we've got to say something like who asked you why like how did you not think that was going to backfire on you I just don't it I expected that from the Rangers I did not expect that from the stars and I'm very disappointed and I'm also just straight up confused about it um also straight up confused about how they're playing actually not as confused because it's Rick Bonus's fault um I just First of all, these the team that plays in front of Hudobin and the team that plays in front of Ottinger are two different teams. And it feels like when Ottinger is in the net, the team is like, okay, this kid's a rookie. We need to do everything we can to help him not have to save anything. Like we'll, we'll play our best defense in front of him. He needs all the help. We will not let him down. And then the minute Dobie's in the net, it's like, well, he saved us in postseason. He knows what he's doing. We don't have to play any defense. We don't even have to know what defense is. And it's just bonkers. And then, like, part of me is like, okay, the team is just doesn't care is what it, it – and I hate ever saying a team or players don't care because they obviously care they care so much it is their job there is no way I care more than they care but that's just the vibe it gives off or it's like they care almost too much when Ottinger is in net and not enough when Dobie's in net but then it's also like I can't even blame them because uh, I almost called him Monty uh bonus switches lines every day and every game and during the game and like how could you have any kind of chemistry or get any kind of streak going when you don't even know who's on your line anymore and like I hate talking crap about bonus but it, it it is what it is and since Hudobin was benched He's only started one game and Ottinger started two. They haven't won a game since February 2nd. We, the Stars lost in overtime two to one against Chicago. They just lost a shootout, which that's another thing. So first of all, I was so happy when they tied it with like 30 seconds left in that game. And I was like, oh my God, this is going to be amazing. I'm going to be so pissed if they lose it in overtime. Just like after that amazing play, you're just going to wash it away in overtime. No, they did it in a shootout instead. But the thing I don't get is like, 
so first of all rick was so predictable in that game i call him rick when i'm mad at him um <laughs> was so predictable in that game that uh Giriano had six minutes was number two in ice time after the first period and so immediately i tweeted well that just means in the second period Giriano is going to get about four minutes I kid you not, he played four minutes and 10 seconds in that second period, and I should not be able to predict that. There is no way me, a dumb person who has no hockey knowledge except for watching it in the last two years, should be able to predict what a 30-year veteran hockey coach is going to do. And if you can predict it, who else can predict it? Right? And and strategize against it. like So then... At, then my next tweet in the third period, because they were down by two goals, because this is also this pattern of strategy I've seen from bonus, is that when the Stars start to lose in a way that looks like they're not going to make a comeback, that's usually when he gives Giryanov and Hints more ice time, which Hints has actually been getting a lot more ice time that he deserves. Um, Giryanov still like floating out there in the abyss of like, maybe he'll get time tonight and maybe he won't. Um, then he played like, I think it was seven minutes in the third period. I'm like, yeah, that's because we were losing for most of that. So his ice time went up because that's the pattern of strategy here. And then when we went to a shootout, I was like, well, Yurianov's gonna have to be a shooter because Sagan's not there. And it's usually always Sagan and Pavelski. So we only have one guaranteed shooter of Pavelski. He can't put Radulov in because Radulov was on IR um, probably not going to put Ben in after his last shootout. And generally, the strategy that Bonus uses is also the strategy that Monty used. And that is he treats the shootout as rewarding players who scored a goal in the game or just had a really good offensive game, which is exactly what he did, but not in the best way. Because the first shooter he went with was Jason Robbins, Robertson, Robert, Robertson, yeah, which I love the kid. But he's a rookie and he just scored like his first two NHL goals in the last week. And it boggles my mind. Like I get if he was like the third shooter, maybe, but I'm it's a curious choice to make him the first shooter rather than Pavelski, who's the veteran and like used to shootouts. But Robertson, and how long have I been screaming about Gurionov and Hintz being in the shootout? And you've just give it to a rookie like I'm confused so he didn't score Pavelski was second shooter he didn't score oh and look at that we finally let Giriano be a shooter and he didn't score um but also at that point I was like well no one's gonna score if Pavelski didn't score so it doesn't matter um and also like only one of the six shooters scored and it was the one person who decided to, you know, actually make the goalie move and not like just skate straight at him, which even I know someone who's never skated or played hockey in her life knows don't just skate at the goalie and shoot and expect it to get in. That's not a great strategy, but I, I just, I don't. Laura, my team needs help. Um, <laughs> and I I'm, just, I'm, I'm frustrated. I'm going to end this. I just came across something on, on Twitter and I am like heated right now. <laughs> so I need to get this. This is hockey related. And this is related to everyone's favorite human, oh, Mr. God. Tony D'Angelo. 
So I knew you were gonna say him. Larry, this is a great segue. I can just channel <laughs> all my madness at him. Larry Brooks of the New York Post. Yes, covers the Rangers. Um, he had apparently he was the person that was selected for the first interview of the Tony D'Angelo reclamation process, which clearly happened outside of New York. So this is like, it's not the Rangers doing this. I can't believe because it's very, and okay, first of all, he says like several times, I'm not playing the victim card here. Like basically he was saying he made some mistakes in the Georgiev situation, which fine, whatever. But then he said he started talking about like all the things like I'm not really a racist um everything was taken out of context um it's just it's frustrating um and so I have to read the one that got me to where I'm like I'm going to to lose my shit so It fit the narrative, didn't it? And that was a, a, the story about Keandre Miller. That's what it is. Or maybe it served the narrative that there was something intrinsically rotten in the MAGA supporter who seven years earlier as an 18-year-old had been suspended by the Ontario Hockey League and his Sarnia team for revying, violating the league's harassment, abuse, and diversity policy. And here's the like signal of stupidity. You're, you know, you're gonna know before they say anything that it's stupid. Not that it makes it any less heinous in nature, but it's like, oh, I love where this is going already. The Post has learned that the slur he directed at a Caucasian teammate was ethnic in nature, not related to race. And it kind of makes it sound like a, some kind of Jewish anti-Semitic comment. And it's like, oh, not that that's, he's, he's only anti-Semitic. He's not racist. <laughs> well then gee just let him do whatever he wants and and so everything like and it, it's not written from a like there it's one thing to write an article that says okay here is what was said about him and here's his response Pierre Lebrun did that with Mike Babcock and I think you can't like, I think people were overly aggressive towards Pierre Lebrun. First of all, I think you, it's hard to compare what Mike Babcock did with, with Tony D'Angelo. Mm -hmm. Like, they're so different situations. But Pierre Lebrun just gave an article to it and then let Mike tell his story and didn't flavor it or spin it in any way. It was letting you draw your own conclusions. This is spinning things. This mm -hmm. is him, like, like the writer seeks to frame narratives in ways that clearly Tony and his agent would want, but that's not your job. And people, and if you do that, if you're doing that as like an analysis piece, then people have a right to question that. It's like, I thought people were very over the top in questioning um, Pierre Lebrun because it's like, listen, this isn't a, like, he's not framing things. He mm -hmm. is, like just comment he's just uh presenting it out there for you and then letting you kind of draw your own conclusions and I think this is very fair criticism but 
of course, because this is a person who is who can who is framing everything as he's not the victim, but he is the victim and all of that stuff. Larry Brooks did not take well to Twitter not liking his his comment. So he's blocking a bunch of people, including writers who have been criti cri uh, critical. And a lot of people have problems with the P uh, Professional Hockey Writers Association for not taking a stand on this and stuff like that. And I mean, it would be one thing if he went after like actual reporters and stuff, but uh, someone sh tweeted out um, a thing because a woman, uh, which they kept her private for obvious reasons because she's a private person, responded on Twitter to this. And the guy, this reporter, a New York Post reporter tweets to just a fan who like had a comment on something, DMs her, and I bet you think of yourself as tolerant. Go fuck yourself, dude. Honestly, like cannot handle that. Um, just uh and i thought it was best it said best right andrew berkshire uh canadians fan and steve dangle's friend so we know we, i we already know that he is like a better human than this guy this is the weak craven shit the phwa is choosing to promote today very cool yeah uh sean shapiro also had something to say about that because like phwa like their comment on it was Tony D'Angelo bears his soul and first comment since Rangers exile, which what a weird way of like promoting it when you're the professional hockey writers association and not like the publication who posted it. And Sean Shapiro was like, PHWA should not be promoting the story. And I say this as the Dallas chapter chair for the PHWA. And it's like, First of all, the fact that they even framed it in that way and not just like, like they, since it's not their publication, they should have framed it in a more uh, objective way. And okay, the fact that he had to respond to the bane of my existence, Mark Madden, who has like a dumb radio show where he has, he's like all of the dumb Facebook takes in a radio Ew. show in Pittsburgh. Gross. It's horrible. A lot of people don't like him. And of course he like, D'Angelo can't speak his piece again. And Sean Shapiro makes the perfect point. He can be interviewed. That's not the issue. The issue is PHWA should be promoting accurate journalism and works that covers things fairly and not work that is just like a one-sided redemption platform without hard questions. And I think that's exactly like if the PHWA put something up about Carol LeBrun's piece that would like the he can't ever speak his piece again would be a fair question yeah because it was just uh rep reporting and fairly and all of that but there is no way you can read that article and think it is anything approaching fair it is a puff piece and even if you didn't think Tony D'Angelo did anything wrong even if you agreed with something that they had done like okay say whoever uh chris Kreider, whoever got suspended for their actions in the tony d'angelo saga mm -hmm. and they did a puff piece about that you can agree with what they did 
and say that this isn't journalism. It's a PR story. It's like Mm -hmm. a PR campaign. And I think that's the point of the Professional Hockey Writers Association is supposed to be about journalism. And that's not journalism. Yeah, it feels very much like when uh, Ken Rosenthal wrote that piece about uh, Trevor Bauer and it didn't read like an opinion on him. It read very much like, here, hire this player. Let's sign him to a major contract. He's great. Just forget about those little uh, confrontations that weren't that big of a deal. And to go after random fans in general and then of course it's a woman Uh, right like screw your like just really you're that sensitive you're kind of proving what everyone thought about tony d'angelo is true about yourself too like Mm -hmm. sorry that wasn't on the issue that wasn't on our thing that it just like it happened (laughs) today and i needed it (laughs) we make our own rules here and I'm going to do, I'm going to make an audible and do my rant first because yeah. it kind of relates to this and I need some space because yeah. it's a little political and it's not a little, it's a lot political in nature, but oh, so is mine. I'm going to need people like my people to stop <laughs> using, well, Trump did something worse as an excuse for literally everything. I get it. And that's a valid point when it comes to who you're voting for. You, you cannot like Biden and still say you should vote for him because it's a binary choice and Trump is worse is a valid reason to vote for Joe Biden. However, Trump isn't in office. And so we can't dismiss our elected individuals and just say everything is fine so long as they aren't as bad as Donald Trump because then Donald Trump wins because then he gets to reframe expectations in Washington. And so what I'm specifically talking about is Biden had said right around his his inauguration, and I'm pulling up an article because I wanted to direct quote, he, in a like meeting with his incoming staff. I'm not joking when I say this. If you ever work with me and I hear you treat another colleague with disrespect, talk down to someone, I will fire you on the spot, no ifs, ands, or buts. And then this week, and there is something to this story. It's not just as simple as people or some people make it seem. Um, An associate in the press uh, office, TJ Ducklow, got wind that a story was coming out um, about his relationship with a journalist. The journalist from Axios happened to be a black woman. And I think that's very important because there was questions about why like this particular story and were there other elements to that. That is a fair thing to discuss. Not fair of TJ Ducklow to do is instead of going after the guy who reached out for him for comment and the guy who was the primary writer on the story, he went after the secondary person, a woman, said misogynistic things to her, said he will destroy her and all of this sort of thing. And then for that, um, he apologized to her and realized that it was he wasn't living by the standard. So he will take a week suspension. No. Right? And here's the thing. You can agree that that, that like, the article can be have been wrong. Like he could have had a point that the article is wrong. It still doesn't mean you get to be a misogynist and say those kinds of things to journalists and especially targeting the woman in specific. And the fact that I'm seriously seeing people say, well, Donald Trump did way worse. 
no shit. But like, that's why we picked Biden. That's why we elected him. He's supposed to be better. And that Jen Psaki, who's like the White House press aide, her thing was like, Biden had no decision in this, which is my least favorite thing I ever hear. Big things happen in like corporate big scandals. And it's always the CEO had no idea. It was all the people under him and stuff. And so she was basically like, this was a press department decision. He's the president. It was national news. He He can step in and say, listen, this is my policy. And you either do this or you aren't my press secretary. And I get it. I get like the, there was also the point that TJ Ducklow has cancer and all that. All of that stuff can be part of the story, but none of it excuses the actions. And I see so many people doing that. And I just hate it. it. It just drives me absolutely insane. And I think it's to the point of that, um, I can't ever say her name, Emily Ratajkowski. Uh, she's like a model or something early on in Trump's presidency really went after a Times reporter who was like calling Melania like this giant slut and stuff and basically saying you don't have to like Melania I don't like her but that doesn't give you a right yeah to to do really harmful things for society and that's what I think here too and so it just really bothered me what I was seeing I'm like this can't be the next four years because then you're just asking for Trump to come back or someone like him because you have such low expectations. And uh, Ducklow, did, he resigned yesterday. He was not fired, though. And I just, I fundamentally disagree. Yeah. With every way in that was handled. And it's really sad to me that we're less than a month after Biden said that and and I I mean okay Biden wasn't my choice I don't think a lot of us Biden was our choice as far as like of the of the Democrat side of things right yeah obviously our choice I want to clear that up up. it should have been obvious but I want to clear that up he wasn't our first choice to be the Democratic nominee not my first not my second (laughs) like definitely not up there but from a lot of what I was seeing and and just what I expected like I thought he was better than this. And so it's really disappointing to me. And yeah, I think I think it's it's almost more so like it's like with Trump, I got angry. Like mm-hmm. and I was obviously sounded a little angry there too. But this is so disappointing because I didn't really have any expectations with Trump. Yeah. Except like I know what you mean. this. But with Biden, it's like I had real expectations. And to see that like we haven't really come anywhere, like it just really saddens me. So I, I think it's also because that was like his day one like statement. And like, if you said that and you didn't follow up on it, what else are you not going to follow up on? And when you think about it, it's like, how could you not follow up on this? It's a like associate press official. Like, it's not your secretary of state or something. Yeah, it's not even the uh, press secretary like. It's not, he, he was a deputy press secretary, assistant yeah. or something like that. And it's just, it's, that's, it's like, it's such an own goal and disappointing. You so. know what it, 
You know what I think it also, why it feels so disappointing is because it makes it seem like you can still talk to women in a misogynistic way and have no repercussions unless it's made public that there were no repercussions. And I think by virtue of the fact that Donald Trump, like, don't get me wrong, the people's point isn't incorrect. Like what Trump has done was objectively worse. Right. But I think it kind of maybe lured people into a sense of like and all of the campaigning around like we're we're not Donald Trump um kind of maybe made me think that we were farther along than we actually are and it's really sad and just kind of like you said a depressing realization that it's still there and it's and this is the thing where it's like it's great that Biden really chose and like made Um, representation a part of his cabinet selection Mm -hmm. but if he's not going to handle situations like this differently then to me it reads like a little bit of a PR stunt yeah yeah I totally agree so Um, that was my rant sorry it was a little bit of a downer (laughs) no I mean that's kind of what our rants are um my rant is also kind of a downer um the impeachment and I mean, so here's my issue. I know we all went in knowing he was not going to get convicted. Like we all, like literally every Republican except seven were told us he wasn't going And they to. needed two thirds. Like there was no way. Yeah. They needed 17. The Democrats needed 17 Republicans to vote with them to convict him. And let's be honest. Some of those seven people voted because they knew that they weren't even going to get close to the 17 they needed. Correct. And however, I watched the last two days that the prosecution uh, or the Democrat senator uh, representatives made their case. And I'm t- like, obviously, the impeachment works different. It's not a criminal trial or a civil trial it works differently. They have different rules. But, like their case felt so solid and even even knowing how like great of a case they made that wasn't going to change their mind like in my head I was like so proud like oh, they made such an airtight great case they spent three days proving with an abundance of evidence and then Saturday happened and I got so excited because they were going to call a witness and that was like the surprise thing like no one expected them to say they were going to call witnesses so when they did it, it was like, oh my God, they're going to call witnesses. They're going to do it. Like, again, might not change minds, but we as the American public still don't know everything that happened that day. And we can only know if people tell us and under oath. If you're not going to get a conviction, then the whole point should be to have exactly, witnesses exactly. and information. That's what this felt like. It felt like, okay, the representatives going in, presenting the case, know that they're not really presenting it to the Republican Senate. They're presenting it to us, the people, because we deserve to know what happened. And we deserve to know how crappy these Republicans are who don't care about an insurrection. And it felt like when they were going to call witnesses, it's like, oh my God, it's going to happen. We're going to find out details. And even if we still don't convict him, at least we know what happened. And they even got the vote to approve witnesses coming in because they just needed a simple majority. And they got it. 
and they're gonna have witnesses and then they just caved and didn't call them and i've seen the tweets about like this is why you shouldn't be mad about them calling not calling witnesses and blah 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 but i'm still gonna be mad about it right now because it still freshly just happened and i feel like it was such a disservice to us for them not to call witnesses because yeah so what was the point if we weren't going to call witnesses right you might as well have been trying to do actual legislation then if you weren't going to like have this be a benefit to us right like because again we all knew going into this that it was not going to change enough minds for it to convict so clearly your whole point is to reveal everything that you know or maybe even that you don't know so we all can know and then nothing and it's so In the end, seven Republicans voted to convict. Obviously, that's not enough. However, that's two more than they had a month ago when they were voting originally on if it was constitutional to even have the uh, impeachment trial for a now president that wasn't in office, that isn't in office now. Like, you change two minds in a month, like maybe a witness could have changed a couple. Like even if it's still not enough, it still could have changed some. And that's so much like, like the public information. That's so much, like if you look back on the Richard Nixon case, the reason that he wasn't convicted is basically because they tried it out in the open and everyone was like, well, it's very obvious he's going to get convicted. So he just resigns. And it's like, they didn't even try and it's like okay but they didn't try but then they didn't not try they did this middle thing where we ended up wasting time and not much came of it not even like practically conviction because obviously we all need that right what was the aim then like what were we trying to do and it should be noted that most of the republicans either are not on the ballot in the next election are retiring or in like mitt romney's case he had voted to convict the last time so we already knew he was going to vote with the democrat so it's kind of like the other dudes as we all know weren't going to do it because oh we're going to be up for election soon so we can't go against our party blah, 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 blah. um and then you also had like I saw the tweets like, well, this is the most people that have ever voted against their party to convict. I'm like, yeah, I guess I could be happy about that, but I'm still, it's, I'm not that thrilled about it. Well, um, that's like Amy Coney Barrett for her confirmation that Susan Collins voted against her, but Susan Collins was in a tight re-election race and they did not need her to con- confirm. So of course right. she didn't vote. Like she, she, McConnell probably told her not to. And then you had all of like, everyone's saying well really couldn't break, like stretch this trial out that long because the senate really needs to get back to voting on covid relief blah 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 they're not in like in the senate next week they have vacation next week it's not like they're coming back to be like because that was the next thing i saw well like maybe they just want to end it so then next week they can work on covid relief and confirming cabinet members for biden it's like they're they're not doing that next week anyway because they're on vacation well and okay they can't agree on whether to call witnesses for the thing that they want that they knew they weren't going to get convictions and the whole point was to show the story in public what makes any of us think that we're going to get something meaningful anytime soon and this is where I I think people got a little overly confident when we got Georgia it's like oh we have 50 plus the tiebreaker then you need every single person you need them all to go and like Joe Manchin's included in that 
And like, clearly it's not as organized. And this has always been my issue with like the party as far as like the operatives and stuff. They get mm-hmm. out and organized routinely. Like besides Trump, uh, not Trump, Obama's win, most recent years, they've just gotten completely out organized in local yeah. elections and all these different things. It took Trump winning for them to even get remotely organized. And yeah. still, I'm convinced, like, if Trump wasn't so terrible with COVID, he might have got reelected. Oh, and, yeah. And it's like, okay, how is this possible? How can we do this? And also, I've told my mom this before. They either need to decide, can Bernie Sanders run or can't he? Because I get that he's an independent and so pe- some people say he shouldn't run for the Democrat nomination. However, what they've done in 2016 and what they did in 2020 is they let him run enough to get all of the other candidates out except for Hillary Clinton, like she was kind of the only, it was only either her or him all along. But Joe mm-hmm. Biden, Bernie Sanders, like kind of filled in a space that a lot of people got eliminated on. And then everyone was just like, okay, Bernie can run, Bernie can run, Bernie can run. But then as soon as he got popular, it was like, okay, we got to go to Biden because he's the only one left we like. It's like, mm-hmm. well, if you'd have just said, like, no, he is not going to be our nominee. Like, we just don't want to do this. I might not have agreed with that decision, but at least we would have had a choice other than Joe Biden. Like, they, they can't organize for yeah. the life of them. And yeah. I'm like, how is this still a thing? How can we not figure this out? And, like, it's also frustrating because then after the vote to acquit, then you have McConnell coming up and saying, yeah, the, Trump caused all of this. It's all, he did it all. He clearly incited it. He's the, he was, like, the mastermind of all of this. So you're what? Because like he made it sound like, well, he could still be tried in like a criminal and civil court. I'm like, that's cool. But you're probably going to regret this in four years when he's running again. Because like, I I don't remember who said it, but one of the I think it was a Democratic senator was like, I'm not worried about, you know, Trump running again. I'm I'm worried about him running again and losing. And we go through this all over again. I'm like, yeah, exactly. Because the only people you're, I mean, the people who were there and stormed the Capitol, they're going to get punished. But, like, <laughs> I'm sure there's more that can go up there in four years. If I can, because I've been thinking about this uh, yes. with the um, insurrection and everything. I started reading, I because I watched the and Netflix documentary about, like, social media and stuff. And one of the people they had on wrote this book called The Age of Surveillance Capitalism. And it talks about like Facebook and Google and all of those. And it's very fascinating. And I think it really helped put the 2016 election and just Facebook in general in a whole new mindset. Because I think to some degree, not completely, but to some degree, the Russia narrative really suited Facebook. Yeah. Because even though they were negligent and that's in that narrative they were negligent the enemy isn't facebook it's the russians but reality is that facebook and those social media sites what they do and they she kind of displays in the book like 
there's the, the old saying like if you aren't paying for the product then you are the product mm-hmm. and she's like that's not true if you aren't paying for the product then you're the raw material and then they take like the information about you and they transform it and it's to be able to influence you to things that they want and to be able to sell your information elsewhere but it's in the influence and like the predictive capabilities and that's what Facebook does is they show you pages it's like okay so you're kind of a li- like a little libertarian leaning well let me show you this page and then okay let me show you a little bit tougher than that and let me go a little bit further and it's not even fa- it's their algorithm mm-hmm. and it's like uh, I, I was as I'm reading it it's in- individualization at mass scale so like it's doing the same, it will do the same thing to a liberal. It'll do the same thing to anybody. Do the same thing if you're absolutely like passionate about peanut butter. I don't know. Like <laughs> it's going to like gradually like go, like go more extreme. I don't know how you get extreme about peanut butter, but like I was just coming up with an example. I would want to be in a peanut butter cult. I mean, <laughs> that sounds fun. So, but um, it, and the, the thing that's interesting is Obama his whole like success was in like they knew they say they knew how people were going to vote before they had decided how they were going to vote yeah and the the infrastructure behind that and all of the intellectual power was the ceo of google which is great like in the sense that obama won great but then you think about who has a seat at the table for everything who's on every board everywhere google and when you mm-hmm. look at how google like basically anything you do, if, if you use Google once, you can assume that anything you do on that computer or that device is getting repackaged and sold to someone, whether you wanted to or not. And so, and there's no one that's on your side in any of that. And so I just, I think it's really interesting, like the insurrection and stuff. I think that's a really important component of it that is a thread to the Russian thing. It's a thread to everything is Facebook's culpability in this, Twitter's culpability in this. And I think it's kind of convenient for Twitter to ban Trump now. It's like they let him like kill a bunch of people and then just be like, okay, now we're deporting you. That'd be the equivalent of a government doing that. It's like, okay, now that you killed like a hundred people, we're going to deport you. When it was 50, it was okay. But a hundred. Now that there's undeniable proof. Like you've already. Everyone wasn't being dramatic. Well, yeah. And it's like, okay, it's great comparison for this show. It's the equivalent of the NHL doing rapid testing after <laughs> they've already had infections in the league. Like he already got all of his like people on Twitter radicalized even more. Yeah. So who cares if he's on or he's not? There's plenty of people there to do the same thing. Like, I mean, I'm not sad that he's gone, but I'm just saying. Oh my God, this weekend, could you imagine how much worse it would have been if he was there? But (laughs) it makes Twitter look better than they are. Yeah. And that's totally by design. And so it's just, I, I say in all of this, please, please, please learn about what those social media companies are doing and learn about how they exploit all of us and how they're influencing us because it's fascinating. Yeah. So we went way off the rails, <laughs> but I love this kind of stuff. I love, I could talk about this stuff for days. Yeah. Like sports and life. Um, <laughs> so 
I think it's time we do rave and yes. we're doing a, a, a group rave here because today we our other passion royals we got the best news ever mm-hmm. that Meghan Markle is pregnant aka the Duchess of Sussex I just call her Meghan Markle because I think it's cute yeah that's probably how most people know her style yeah. too so but the Duchess of Sussex Meghan however you want to say she is pregnant with their second child they had it should be the cover of like a cute not like those corny romance novel but like the one that's going to be made into like the epic love story movie yes that it's like it's so cute you have to see the picture and it's their classic black and white picture Mm -hmm. and it's it's just so cute and I I love how casual it is which has also been kind of like their style with how they announce things and I love that it was announced on Valentine's Day which um, when Diana was pregnant with Harry, it was announced, I think, the day before. And Harry was her second child. Yeah. It's so serendipitous. Born in September, so it's just so cute. It's Because it almost kind of feels like it was almost in honor of her as well in, like, a subtle way, which I feel like you kind of do a lot. And can I also say... Um... I think it's kind of like the fashionista in me. So you look at that that photo and she's just like, you think she's wearing this like very casual maxi dress. It's right. custom Carolina Herrera. Right? I'm like, how epic. Like, I, of course. That's I was so like, awesome. Oh, right? I was like, oh, that's going to be like a small brand, like a casual. I was even thinking it was like J. Crew or something. Yeah, or like Madewell, something like that. Nope. Carolina Herrera. Custom made when she was pregnant with Archie. I love it. Which I'm really curious. That must have been something like, do you think it was made for like the Morocco tour and she just didn't wear it? Yeah. Because if you look at like the dresses that she wore in the Morocco tour, Mm -hmm. very similar in appearance. Like the kind of floaty loose thing. And she like, it looks like it would fit about the same time. It could have, I guess, been the Australia tour too. But I would be more inclined yeah. to think the uh, Morocco tour. Yeah. So that's really exciting. And speaking of that, uh, Elizabeth Holmes, who wrote the uh, So Many Thoughts on Royal Style book that I uh, love so much, um, she did a whole Instagram story about the picture, which was really cute, which her Instagram stories that she does called So Many Thoughts was what inspired her to write a book with the same title so highly recommend go looking at her Instagram stories because she kind of does like little breakdowns and it makes you think of other things that you didn't think about before and it just makes it even cuter um and the uh, photographer is also a great friend of hers so I thought mm-hmm. that was and he had this really sweet comment so so many great things about this I'm just so excited and um the setting of the photo like all of the natural it's so them yes it's like casual but then also like when you learn it's Carolina Herrera you're like ah oh, there's that little touch and it also kind of just shows how I think it's a great message of like we found our place we're really content in mm-hmm. this new life not like we found uh, that sounded bad I'm not saying that 
being royal wasn't their place. No, but I'm I totally saying, know. You know, and I meant like that this they've settled into a new life that's yeah. like super great for them and they're doing awesome. So I so excited. Oh my gosh, little Archie's gonna be a big brother. Yes. I I really, really, really this is like bad of me. Obviously, I will be happy no matter what. But I would love to, for them to have a little daughter because Megan was a daughter, of course, but then Harry and but and, and uh Daria with oh that'd be so cute you'd get the three generations of girls picture yes. you just know what would happen also Megan needs a mini me because that would be adorable yes and in my mind like her and Charlotte would be like so cute best friends because like Charlotte's really the only granddaughter on that side so yeah. they need like another girl over there that'd be that'd just be adorable Here's, whatever though it's just so exciting <laughs> such happy news so definitely check out the photo if you haven't already but that's our we knew what our array was going to be <laughs> um so with that we will see you all next week um who knows what we'll be talking about oh, then for real you know we'll have a rant though <laughs> so with that we'll see you all next week